Good morning. And we are glad that you're here. And thank you for coming and worshiping with us here at Ivy Creek. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you please take them and turn with me once again to the book of Revelation and to chapter 2. Revelation 2, this morning we are going uh, to continue our sermon series where we are examining the letters from the Lord to the churches there in Asia. And uh, these letters were written nearly 2,000 years ago. Uh, by the Apostle John, yet they were dictated to him by Jesus himself who came and appeared to John while John was in exile on the island of Patmos. And the reason that he was exiled there was because he had been preaching the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And each of these letters is individual in nature. It is written to a specific church that faced a specific set of circumstances. And much like many of the churches that surround us today here in Buford and in the state of Georgia and in the United States, these churches, though, though they were all generally located near one another in what is today uh, known as the modern-day country of Turkey, these churches were not all identical to one another any more than any church around here is identical to one another. Uh, certainly there were overlaps with regard to what each church faced, particularly as we're talking about these churches here in Asia Minor uh, with the Roman government. There were certain overlaps of things that they would experience uh, from one church to the next uh, and, and the pressures that each individual church faced. But, but each letter, you'll notice, is unique uh, in that each one addresses specific issues faced by those individual churches. And yet... At the end of each letter, our Lord concludes by saying, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, what, what Jesus is saying is that every letter that he wrote, he intended to be read by all the other churches as well. And what that lets us know is that the message that was conveyed in each individual letter was a message that was still applicable to all those other churches as well. And we can also even bring that forward into the 21st century and say that the messages that were written to each individual church here in Revelation 2 and 3, those messages are still applicable to us today. And I believe that's an important point. I think it's something right on the front end that we need to recognize. You see, our culture increasingly promotes the idea of personal or subjective truth. In other words, such a concept declares that while something may be true for you, it's not necessarily true for me. Now, when I'm talking about things like this, I'm not talking about what football team you pull for. I'm not talking about whether you prefer sweet or unsweet tea. Who prefers unsweet tea? <laughs> I'm not talking about what, what kind of car you drive, if your preference is a Ford or a Chevy or a Dodge. Or, I'm not talking about things like that. What I'm trying to say is that all of those individual likes and dislikes and preferences fall under the category of, of something that you personally are pulled toward, a like or a dislike or, or, or a, an individual persuasion towards something. And, and that's what makes us individuals. It's what makes us unique. What I'm talking about, what I'm talking about is the constant push in our culture toward redefining truth as being whatever an individual decides that truth is supposed to be. Those who embrace such an individualistic approach toward truth tend to bristle 
at the thought of there being an objective truth that is true for all human beings, all people everywhere. And that is particularly true when it comes to the area of religion and the area of faith. The battle cry that you will hear is simply this, in some way, shape, or form, they will say, look, you can believe whatever you want to believe and live by whatever code you want to live by so long as it doesn't conflict with the code that I live by and with my beliefs. But what I want you to know is that as Christians, as those whose confession is exactly what little Kate confessed this morning, that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, those of us who make that confession and make up the body of Jesus Christ I want you to know we have an obligation to do just as Jude tells us in his letter, verse 3, to earnestly contend for the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. Brothers and sisters, if you and I are going to contend earnestly for the faith, then we will have to make up our minds that we are going to hold fast to God's Word, that we are going to grasp tightly to it and not let go of the objective truth that He has given to us, truth that is true for all men, all women, all boys, all girls, everywhere. I've entitled today's sermon, Hold Fast to the Truth of Jesus. And I believe that that title actually sets the context for this third letter that I want us to read and examine this morning. So read with me. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, we hear the Word of God. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for your goodness to us and thank you for this time that you have given us this morning. Give us hearts to, to understand, eyes to see, and ears to hear what you would say to us this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. On your outline, you will notice the first point there is a pretty straightforward point. The church that we are going to be looking at this morning is the church there in Pergamos. And while we know very, very little about the church in Pergamos, we know a little more about the city of Pergamos itself. Pergamos was the political capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor. It was 
a city that was noted as a center for culture and education. In fact, it had one of the greatest libraries of the ancient world, probably second only to Alexandria, Egypt. It boasted of more than 200,000 volumes in its library, which what makes that even more significant is that each and every one of those were written by hand. So it was a, it was a monumental place to, 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 to be and to behold. Pergamos was also an extremely religious city. It had temples to the Greek and Roman gods Dionysus and Athena and Demeter and even to Zeus. Uh, in fact, the temple of Zeus was erected on a hill uh, there in, in Pergamos, and it was so massive that its, its temple could be seen from any particular part in the city, no matter where you were. And it was also said that the, the smoke from the sacrifices of people bringing uh, things to be sacrificed on that altar, you could see 24 hours a day, seven days a week as it, as it went up through the sky. There was also the temple built for the, Roman, for the worship of the Roman god Asclepius. Uh, represented by a serpent, Asclepius was the god of healing and knowledge. The temple there uh, for Asclepius housed a medical school, and, and, and sick and diseased people from all over the Roman Empire would flock to Pergamus in hopes of, get this, laying down on the floor in the temple and allowing snakes to crawl across them. I suppose if one didn't have a heart attack, then they could assume that they were going to be well. And then there was the worship of the Roman emperor. Uh, Pergamos had three temples set up for emperor worship. And, and, and they were one of the first to even have the modern, the, the, the current emperor, a place to worship him there in their city. And I, I read one this week that sort of put everything into context for us. He says, Whereas Christians throughout Asia Minor were in danger for their lives at least once a year, when it was compulsory that citizens throw a little pinch of incense into the fire and worship the emperor. The Christians in Pergamos were in danger every day and all year round. And the writer goes on to say this, we can only imagine what a spiritually oppressive and hostile environment Pergamos must have been for this band of Christians. Now, that was the culture of the believers to whom the resurrected Lord Jesus writes this letter. And in doing so, I want you to know He reveals something important about Himself. The Lord draws from an image that is described of Him in chapter 1, verse 16. It describes that a, a double-edged sword, a two-edged sword, a very sharp one, came from His mouth. And, and in light of that, He tells these believers in Pergamum, He says, These things says He who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, if we were to continue reading in Revelation, we'd come eventually to Revelation 19, verse 15, and there we read that when Jesus returns in all of His power and in all of His glory, it says that He will come and a sharp sword will come out of His mouth that He should strike the nations. And He Himself will rule them, the Bible says, with an iron rod. Now, if you begin to take all those pictures together, what you begin to realize is that Jesus is revealing a key element of His character to the church there in Pergamon. That's the second point that I want you to see. That key element of His character is simply this. It's judgment. It's judgment. Specifically, here in His letter to these Pergamon believers, we recognize this about our Lord's judgment. The first thing that we note about it is that it is true. His judgment 
is true. This, this, this two-edged sword, it comes out of His mouth. And we know then that the sword represents His Word. And because it's God's Word, we know that it's true, that it's trustworthy, that it is reliable, that it is inerrant, that it is infallible. His Word is authoritative. His Word is indisputable. And all people everywhere will have to answer to it. But that's not all. It's not just that His judgment is true. Secondly, notice His judgment is thorough. This sharp sword has two edges to it. And therefore, the nature of God's Word is, as Danny Aiken has put it, it cuts quickly and cleanly. And in the process, it hurts, but it also heals. It cuts, but it also cures. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. He says, The Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intent of the heart. The image of this, this double-edged sword of Christ conveys absolute authority and decisive discernment. It is true. It is thorough. And because this sword of judgment is wielded by the resurrected Christ, then there must be no mistaking that it is the sword that we must ultimately fear and that we must ultimately respect. Aiken says this, he said, Rome might wield the sword on earth, but the glorified Christ wields a mightier sword from heaven. And as I was reflecting on that, this week, I couldn't help but ponder on the fact that for these believers here in, in Pergamum, in, this, in this, this city that was just oppressed by all of these areas and different things, that, that these people who lived under the dominion of the Roman Empire and they, they faced significant threats to their lives because of their faith. And they had to know that there were things that they could do that would spare them from the sword of Rome. They could certainly, once a year, just throw that little incense on the fire. They could certainly proclaim that Caesar was Lord. They could do those things and, and, and feign loyalty to, to Caesar in order to just go along to get along. But doing those things put them in the danger of the sword of Christ. And so in many respects, they faced daily the question of whose sword would they fear? Whose sword would they respect more? Whose judgment was authoritative for them. And what I want you to know is honestly, though the circumstances are quite different in many respects, I believe that the church of the 21st century will increasingly find itself having to ask those same questions. So now that we know a little bit about the church in Pergamos, and now that we know a lot about who Jesus is and the judgment that he came and he, he promises to bring, notice the next point, the next component of this letter is the word of commendation. It's the third point there, and this is a commendation for their faithfulness. He commends the church in Pergamos for their faithfulness. Notice what he says in verse 13. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. 
notice that Jesus commends this, church, this church's faithfulness in three areas. The first one, He commends them in the area of their context. In their context. Notice how He begins that verse and He ends it with the same theme. He says, I know that where you live is where Satan lives. That's where Satan's throne is. That's how He starts the verse. That's how He ends it. Now, scholars are... are, are they've bounced around all kinds of ideas as to why... Pergamos appears to have been the epicenter of, of satanic influence and dominion. Was it because of all the temples to all the false gods that was there? Was it, was it because of the 24-7 influence on uh, emphasis on the emperor worship? Uh, was it something else? We don't know for sure, but what I find intriguing about this word of commendation is that Jesus assures these believers that He knew exactly where they lived and He knew exactly what pressures that they faced. Nothing that they were going through escaped His all-seeing eye and His all-knowing wisdom. He knew everything. He saw everything. And in light of that, notice what Jesus does not say to them. He doesn't say, look, since I know that you're living in the capital city of Satan and says, I know that He's afflicting you at every time you turn around. He doesn't say, just flee the city as soon as possible and go find someplace else to live. Jesus didn't say that. Rather, it was because of it, that was the context in which they found themselves that they had been able to live a life of faithfulness that allowed the light of Christ to shine brighter. Which leads to the next area which the Lord commended them for their faithfulness was in their conviction. Their conviction. He, he commends them for holding fast to His name. Listen, to hold fast to something means that you grab onto it with such tenacity that you will not let anything take it from your grip. That's what Jesus says. And look, when He says it, it is in the verb tense, is in the present and active tense. In other words, it is something that they were continuing to do. They were constantly in the process and in the habit of grabbing on to His name and not letting go. They, because of their context, holding fast to the name of Jesus was something that they had to do. And what that meant was is that they were living their lives, they were conducting themselves in such a way to bring glory to the name of Christ. Their conviction was that Jesus was Lord, not Caesar, and not some other false god. But their commendation, I want you to know, was not just for what they were doing in the present, but for how their conviction had been demonstrated in the past. That's the third thing I want you to see. It was, it was, he, they were commended for their commitment. And I want you to notice, he tells them, you did not deny me, you deny my faith. The verb tense there is in the past tense. In other words, it represents something that happened specifically at a time in the past. It's some intense measure of, of pressure that had been placed upon them, even to the point where we read that one of their members, a man named Antipas, had been martyred because of his commitment to Christ. Now the word martyr there, when it was originally written here, didn't necessarily mean that someone had lost their life. In other words, that's why Jesus said, they, he, was, he was my martyr. And then He goes on to say, who had been killed there where you are. There, he was killed among you where Satan dwells. To be a martyr in the Greek, in the first century world, just simply meant to give testimony to the Lord Jesus. But by the time that the second century rolled around and the third century rolled around, that word martyr in Greek came to take on the emphasis of someone who not only testified of their faith in Jesus, but lost their life because they testified of their faith in Jesus. 
It's interesting that it's the same phrase that's used of Jesus back in chapter 1, verse 5. In chapter 1, verse 5, John refers to Jesus as the faithful witness. Jesus refers to Antipas in the exact same terms, which lets us know that when Antipas had identified himself with Christ, even to the point of death, Christ identified himself with Antipas. It reminds me of what Jesus wrote or said in Matthew 10, verse 32. He says, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So we've considered the commendation of these Pergamon believers, but the letter doesn't end there. It goes to the next thing that we see there, and it's a word of condemnation. The commendation is followed up with condemnation, and the condemnation centers around the area of compromise. Notice what Jesus says again in verses 14 and 15. He says, but I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. And thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now what becomes obvious is that these same believers who had been faithful to the name of Jesus and had not denied him under intense pressure had nevertheless begun to compromise. They had begun to tolerate and even buy into the lie that they could simultaneously worship God and at the same time engage in aspects of pagan worship and lifestyle that was all around them. And it's here that the central point of this letter, I believe, becomes clear. In, in his condemnation of these Pergamon believers, we find, as John Stott has written, that the guarding of the truth of the gospel is a major concern for Jesus Christ. He is not only anxious that we should love Him and that we should suffer bravely for Him, but also that we should believe in Him and hold fast to the truth of Him. Now, the Lord relates to us how this church's grip and its grasp upon the truth was being relaxed by these two examples. The first is the, is the doctrine of Balaam, and then the second is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. We find the story of Balaam back in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers. Balaam was one was a prophet who had been approached by a man named Balak who was the king of Moab. Balak offered Balaam some money if he could somehow or another put a curse on the children of Israel as they were attempting to enter into the promised land. And every time, Balaam really wanted the money. And every time he would try to put a curse on Israel, what would come out would be a, would be a blessing instead. And the Lord was just circumventing everything that was happening. But he really wanted the money of Balak. He liked it a lot. So he thought and he conceived, how can I get, how can I cause some harm to the children of Israel? Because nothing that I'm doing is working. And so he convinced Balak, he said, listen, if you will send the women of Moab down to the men of Israel, and if you will get them to entice them to come to some feasts and to partake of some food that had been sacrificed to the Moabite gods, and if you can then get those same women to entice those men into some sexually immoral relationships, you will be able to figure out how to overcome them. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. And the Bible tells us that a plague, God sent a plague upon the Israelites where 24,000 people died. And therefore, what we should come to understand from this example that Jesus uses here from the Old Testament is that what would happen back then was happening now in the, in the land, in the city of Pergamos to this particular church. And they were being seduced into idolatry and immorality. 
And he uses this and then he brings up the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. We don't know a lot about them. Mentioned them in, in the first letter to the church at Ephesus. We don't have any external really information that we can know, but we do know this about the Nicolaitans. Their actions and their deeds were hated by God. And while the Ephesian church was commended because they too hated those same deeds, here we see that they were these Nicolaitans had, had been able to deceive those in Pergamos. And all that we can conclude is that their activities had also deceived them in the area of sexual immorality and idolatry. And what we begin to recognize is the condemnation of Jesus here for compromising with these false doctrines is that it had caused them, first of all, to minimize sin. It caused them to minimize sin. Based upon what our Lord reveals, we come to see that whatever belief system that these Nicolaitans taught, their teaching ultimately took them away from the truth of God's Word. And they had become successful in influencing those believers to conform to the accepted practices of the world and not to be so hard on sinful practices. They evidently sought to minimize the effects of sin by urging tolerance and avoiding too much talk about what the Scriptures taught. But it was not only their practices and their actions that were under attack. Notice also that these believers had, in, these believers had been influenced to move away from the truth. They had moved away from the truth. It's the second point you see there. Just all of the sheer numbers of the, the temples there in Pergamon would have let everyone know that those who lived in that city just wanted to keep all of their bases covered that they could. And, 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 and as far as Christianity goes, they said, look, you can be a Christian and worship Christ, but there's no sense in you thinking that He's the only way. There's no sense in you not being able to also participate in these other areas of, of sacrificial worship to other gods. You can still attend the feast where food has been sacrificed to false gods and idols. You can still participate in cultural activities that were pagan and completely opposed to Christ. In truth, the influence of the Nicolaitans had begun to cause the church in Pergamos to believe that they could just do whatever they wanted to do and it really didn't matter. As one had put, has put it, these believers had been swayed to embrace the concept that a commitment to truth was not nearly as important as being accepted in society. And as a result, Danny Aiken has put it, he said, doctrine mattered little, behavior mattered, behavior mattered even less, and with each passing day, the distinction between the church and the world became more blurred and less clear. The lifestyle of one was barely distinguishable from another, and worldliness, compromise, tolerance had rushed into this church like a flood, and she was on the verge of drowning. I mentioned what Jude wrote in my introduction where he tells us that if we are going that we must contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. And it's the very next verse, verse 4, that Jude tells us why. He says the reason that you're going to have to contend so earnestly for the faith is because certain men have crept in unnoticed. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying there's going to be those that slip in among you and this is going to be their M.O. They are going to get you to minimize sin and they're going to get you to move away from truth. Brothers and sisters, you and I cannot contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints while we simultaneously minimize sin and move away from the truth. Jesus clearly stated, I am the way, 
the truth, the life. No one will come to the Father but by me. His way, his truth, his life is an exclusive way and an exclusive truth and an exclusive life. It does not allow for other options. Jesus also said that he was the light of the world. And as such, his light pierces the darkness by exposing sin. It is because of sin that Jesus died on the cross. And therefore, sin cannot be entertained and winked at. It's effects upon humanity, not just humanity in general, not just those people out there, but humanity in specific. Sin's effects on you and upon me cannot be minimized and cannot be diminished. The pressures of this world in which we live will continue to push in upon us. But even as they do, we are called to shine as brightly as we can. As those who have been united to Christ by faith, our lives must reflect the love of Christ and they must also reflect the truth of Christ. That leads to the next part of this letter. Notice it there on your outline is a command and that command is to repent. It's interesting that Jesus is writing to the church, to the believers in Pergamos, and he tells them, you must repent. He says, if you don't repent, I'm going to come and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, so the repent there is in the singular person. It's in the second person singular. You must repent or I'm going to go fight against them. Third person plural. And that's kind of confusing when you read that. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the church has got to hold fast to the truth of Jesus. It's got to reject those who are false teachers and who seek to undermine a commitment to doctrinal and moral purity. The church has got to confront those and expose their false teaching. That's evidently what not what the church in Pergamos had been doing. But now they are specifically called to turn around. That's what repent means. Go the other direction and begin doing that exact thing. And then notice what that repentance and that commitment to truth would would cause. It would evidently allow those believers to call those who were in error to repentance themselves. And if they would repent, it would keep them from God's judgment. You know, I find it interesting that... When Jesus says this, he uses that same image of the sword again. That's when he comes, he's going to make war. He's going to wage war with the sword of his mouth. What's interesting to me is that Balaam, if you go back and you trace what happened with him, according to Numbers chapter 31, verse 8, Balaam was slain by a sword. And what Jesus is saying right here is the same fate would come for those who were deceiving and teaching falsely there in the land of Pergamos, only this time the sword would not be a physical sword. It would be the sword of Christ's word. In other words, the very gospel of Christ that saves those who obey it will eventually destroy those who reject it and disobey it. What you and I must understand from all of this is simply this. Truth matters. Holiness matters. John Stott has written this, Let those who say that it does not matter what you believe as long as you live well and love all, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this letter. Jesus Christ does not share the lack of doctrinal concern which is exhibited by such people. Notice with me finally that Christ gives this familiar command. It's a command to comprehend and conquer. You've got ears? 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Comprehend, understand. As, as Stott says, let us inwardly digest this letter and the message of it. Furthermore, be a conqueror. Be one who overcomes. Be one who is able to in, influence the change and to do the repenting, to overcome. And listen, if you overcome, did you notice the three things that Jesus promised to those who overcome and conquer? He promised to be their all-satisfying nourishment, first of all. He says, I will be the hidden manna that you have there. In the Old Testament, when the Jews were, were released and they were in the, 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 the land of the desert waiting to go into the promised land, God fed them through, through manna that He sent from heaven. In fact, Exodus 16 verse 4 calls it the bread from heaven. Well, when you go into the New Testament, you find that Jesus takes on that same understanding. In John chapter 6, He says, I am the bread of life, the bread that has come from heaven. And he says, He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. What that means is, is that those who comprehend and conquer, well, they will receive Jesus. They're all surpassing nourishment for all eternity. That's your first one. Second thing, he says, I'm going to give them a white stone. There are more than a dozen really good answers as to what that white stone is. I won't bore you with all of them. Really cool things that people have brought out from history that a white stone might represent. The two best that I think really probably entail the closest is that a white stone was normally given by a judge. A judge had a black stone and a white stone. And when, after he had heard the cases, if one was acquitted of charges, he would give a white stone. That's very, very good and applicable. But another is that a white stone oftentimes was given as an invitation piece to someone to come to a banquet to come to a feast that a person was throwing. And it would be a white stone would be that invitation with, with something inscribed on it. And so that's why the second thing that I would have you say is for those who, who are able to comprehend and conquer, they will receive full acceptance. They've been acquitted of the sin and the charge against them because of what Jesus has done. And they've been invited to the banquet, to the, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But then finally, notice that on that stone would be written a name that only the person to whom it was given would know what was on it. And someone I might ask, well, what do you think was on that stone? I don't know. Only the person who gets it is going to know that. It's what Jesus says. But even there, isn't that cool? Because those who comprehend and conquer will receive the hidden manna. They will receive Jesus, the all-surpassing nourishment for their lives. They will be invited and acquitted of all their sin and invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then they will have a name given to them that only Jesus and them know. I have often wondered, what's heaven going to be like? Maybe you've thought about that at some point. What's heaven going to be like? We sing the songs when we all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be. And we wonder, what's it going to be like? Are we just going to stand around in this vast throng and, and Jesus is going to be way, 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 way out there and we're going to be way, way, way back here? And it, how's this going to work? Here's what I want you to know. Jesus is saying that there's not going to be anything impersonal there. Everything is going to be personal and you will have intimate acknowledgement with Christ. He will know you. He will know your name. He will have a personal relationship with you. And that is the wonderful thing about it. It's not that we're just going to be a part of something great and grand. That's true. But the one who died for me on Calvary's cross will know me by name. And he invites me to him because he will satisfy everything that I need. 
and he invites me to him because he has acquitted me of my charges. I was guilty, but he has taken my punishment. And now he tells me, you come and be a part of this family. You come be a part of this life where you and I will have an intimate relationship, a personal relationship. Why is all of that important? Because brothers and sisters, listen. Anytime you and I are tempted to let go of the truth, Anytime we are tempted to stray from our commitment to live holy and pure lives, we are effectively saying that something or someone else besides Jesus can satisfy us. We are effectively declaring that something or someone else besides Jesus can give us the intimacy that we so desire and that He alone can provide us. And in that, we find the true danger of allowing ourselves to be detoured by those who would seek to undermine the truth of God's word by enticing us simply to compromise. And that's what leads me to my sermon in the sentence this morning, which is this. Though constantly tempted to compromise both morally and theologically, True believers and churches are called to remain faithful to our Lord's divine word and receive his reward of fellowship and eternal life. Brothers and sisters, you and I, we must hold fast to the truth of Jesus. When Jesus prayed for us in John chapter 17, he concluded his prayer to the Father by saying this, Sanctify them, that's us, by your truth. Your word is truth. We much latch, must latch on to that truth with all that we have and not let go. We must not allow ourselves to compromise with the world and tolerate that which Scripture clearly calls sin. We must not budge on the claims of Christ and on the exclusivity of the gospel message. As believers who desire to see our friends and our loved ones impacted by the gospel and won to Christ, we should constantly be reaching out to others in love, but we must not compromise on the truth of God's Word. Ultimately, the message of this letter tells us that we must not flirt with the teachings of those who would pull us away from God's revealed word, we must hold fast to the truth of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, and we thank you so much for just what we've been able to reflect on this morning, to know that you teach us in your word that we are all sinners, there's not a one of us that can stand before you and boast of our good deeds and our good works. The only thing that we have to stand before you and boast about is what Jesus has done for us. And it is this Jesus that calls us to latch firmly to him and not let go. So, Father, I pray that you would find us faithful in that. Help us to do the work that you've called us to do. To do it with tenacity. Help us to be found faithful when you come. Thank you for your saving grace. And thank you for the way that you love us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.